Welcome to the Recruitment Leadership Podcast, hosted by Alison Humphreys. The Recruitment Leadership Podcast is here to help those in the recruitment industry gain awareness and understanding on the hot topics faced by those in the business of hiring people. In each episode, Alison Humphreys is joined by a fellow expert to offer professional knowledge, insight and advice on the biggest subjects affecting recruitment businesses. It's the podcast to listen to for recruitment business frontrunners seeking expert information from industry-leading advisors. Welcome to the Recruitment Leadership Podcast. And welcome to the Recruitment Leadership Podcast. Um, I'm Alison Humphreys, your host, and I'm very pleased to be joined today by Katrina Cheverton. And this is part of our continuing series on leadership in the recruitment industry. Katrina, welcome. Thank you for joining me. Um, Katrina, uh, for anyone who is not aware of her, is CEO of Savannah Group, a London-based but global executive search firm. And Katrina's got an interesting background that's a little bit atypical. So most of the recruitment business owners that I work with have come from running a recruitment desk at some point. Um, Katrina, unusually, you were a senior consultant at PricewaterhouseCoopers, um, later on had some very senior finance roles in Marks and Spencers before you find your way into the recruitment sector. So um, I'd like to start there, if that's okay, Katrina. Um, with this fundamentally different background to many recruiters, a big company, PLCs, and of course, a non-sales background, what are the challenges and opportunities that that's thrown up for you as um, a recruitment business leader now? Thanks, Alison. Thank you for um, taking the time to talk to me. Um, yes, my background is different from anyone I've come across in recruitment. Um, but my role probably isn't that different from many other roles out there. So as you pointed out, I started out in a, with a finance background. I trained as an accountant. I then did increasing numbers of business change roles, both operationally and also as a consultant. So I had lots of blue chip training. Um, I had learned a lot about how the world works, how it should work in fairly well-funded organisations. I then took some time out when my children were small. And during that time, I worked for lots of not-for-profit and had lots of diverse experiences in volunteering. And I came across all sorts of different people doing all sorts of different things. And I started to really get under the skin of how to get the best out of people. And for me, that's fundamentally what leadership is all about. So where I am now is taking that knowledge of how people are their best, adding quite a lot of direction and vision and purpose, my commercial finance skills, and frankly, a whole bucket of empathy, listening, supportive skills alongside a real passion for active inclusion and really just understanding what everyone brings to the party. And for me, that's what makes me a leader. And that's what makes me able to be a CEO, um, particularly in a recruitment um, professional services business. But actually also it starts for me to understand what a leader in any business should be, really. Mm, OK, so you actually joined Savannah Group uh, as FD, I think. 
Yes, I started, so I'd had about 10 years not in the sort of professional world of work um, while my children were small and I was looking for a part-time role and I came, frankly came across Savannah and the previous CEO, John, and I had a chat. We got on well and I was brought in two days a week to do financial reporting and to help the business become more commercial. So um, that's where I started and I did that for a couple of years and then during lockdown because the family commitments frankly became a bit easier because I wasn't having to cart my children around quite as much I was able to take more and more on so at the end of lockdown I was then asked to step up and be the CEO which um, was a surprise to many people. <laughs> yes I'm sure it was and um, it would be helpful for our listeners just to get a sense of the size of the Savannah operation and what you focus on. Sure. So we um, we were established 20 odd years ago, focused on technical IT um, executive search, and that then grew into an executive search and interim management business. And then more recently, we have developed a consulting proposition around those um, executive search clients and industries. And also we have a data business, um, which is looking to able to provide um, authentic answers to the questions, frankly, and help solve business problems. Okay, that's really interesting. And and are those um, add-ons, if you will, are those something that you were driving? Yes, I, I guess where where I come from is I'm not I'm I'm not the biggest biller running the business, which is historically what, as you said, people would expect. But so consequently, I don't have any tie to executive search. I'm here looking at how we actually grow our business, how we deliver more to our clients and how we um, spread our risk, frankly. So we're actually offering more services um, across the board to help our clients grow and solve their problems. So absolutely, I'm very keen on driving diversity, also recognising that the world is changing. Yes, how very interesting, because it's a point that I've often made in my blogs that Actually, you know, I, I meet a lot of people who are very, uh, what's the word, self-limiting about their, you know, I'm a recruiter, therefore I can't deliver anything else. And that often stops them from having those strategic conversations with their clients. Um, and with, they tend to revert back to a kind of got any jobs conversation. <laughs> um, when if they actually spoke to their clients about, you know, what their their main business drivers are, they'd find that, those clients have their own key performance indicators and filling headcount just isn't one of them, you know, <laughs> that actually and there are lots of other solutions they're interested in talking to people about. So you you mentioned this data business that you've developed. Could you, without giving away any trade secrets, could you just briefly explain what services that provides? I guess it's an extension of what recruiters have always done, which has helped to provide the best candidates. But what we're looking at it is slightly different angle and actually providing a comprehensive look at the market, turning over many more stones, really using qualitative data to be able to articulate who is out there. So a fundamentalist, you know, the, our clients come to us with a problem. They need to replace someone. They need some succession. 
some people orientated problem. Well, as you say, a solution is to provide another body, but actually there's a whole other conversation there around what else what else should they be looking at? What are other organizations doing? So and actually being able to provide detailed qualitative research um, adds something different. Okay, now that's really interesting because again, I know a lot of actually quite experienced recruiters who, uh, when I uh, you know, when I describe a consultancy service to them, they go, "Yeah, yeah, I do all that," but actually, what they're doing is just saying, "Oh, by the way, here's a couple of my opinions." It's not a, it's not actually a structured, robust piece of research. So, just going back to your move from you know big listed companies into the executive search field. Can you think back, Katrina, to uh, were there any, was there anything about the industry or the business that surprised you that wasn't as you'd anticipated, that for better, for worse or just different? I think there's there's a lot of similarities. I think the client focus is pivotal and our best recruiters recognise that every single day of the week in every interaction. And that's so important. So having come from a retail background, yeah, customers, customers wear that. So very, very similar. I think the level of professionalism is very similar to a professional services organisation wherever I've worked before. So there's an awful lot of similarities and the drive, the sales drive doubles down on all of that. So actually, there are more similarities than I could possibly have imagined, actually. Um, and it fits quite nicely together. And and when you took up this um, this role in Savannah Group, what was a challenge for you in terms of, of you know moving into a new market? I think, frankly, one of self belief, really. So I joined the business not having done recruitment. I had recruited many many people. I'd done lots of recruitment activities um, in the past, but I hadn't run recruitment processes. So I think there was a sort of imposter syndrome there a little bit that says, but actually. Running a business is very different. There are many, many people in in my business who are far more expert in, than me at running recruitment processes. They're brilliant. What I bring is something different. So it is the hundred percent internal focus on our people and the commercial backbone, so that we are a successful business. And we're a very successful business, and we're very proud of that. But it's about adding all of those skills together and recognizing we're all there to do slightly different things. Yes, interesting. And one of the big mental leaps that uh, a lot of um, people from, you know, who've grown up in the recruitment field have to make is moving away from this obsession with the the top line figure and actually looking at profitability and efficiencies, isn't it? Um, So very often, I've had a case in point um, relatively recently where it was very, very small business. They'd had um, a sort of team best ever month, um, exceeding their previous best performance by, I don't know, 3000 or something like that. So it was, it was still, it wasn't huge, but it was definitely a personal best. Anyway, so they, they went out and basically spent the whole lot in a celebration (laughs) and that wasn't even profit. That was the, that was the revenue figure. Um, so it ended up costing them money, I, you know, ironically. Um, and that's just not having their eye on the, r- the right thing. Um, so I, I hear what you're saying. So, Katrina, moving on, um, I think it's fair to say that in the last few years in particular, we're seeing a different set of expectations on leaders in business. 
Um, we've had the impact of the pandemic, obviously. Um, we have now increasingly and uh, much written about the impact of a massive shortage of employees in key positions and therefore a rebalancing of that power relationship. Um, we've got things like uh, Me Too and a new generation of workforce and so on. Okay, so this is a big question, but what's been your experience of that change? And what, in your view, do leaders now need to start, stop, do differently? Yes, it is an enormous question, and I think nobody has the answer. I think if they think they have, they haven't, because the world is changing very, very quickly and more quickly than any of us could have imagined. Fundamentally, I think if you look at a leadership role 10 years ago, what you were leading was that bit of an individual who came to work. Now we are leading whole people. During the pandemic, we became responsible for people's health, fundamentally, and their well-being. That was all new. And those leaders that didn't take that seriously failed and they failed their teams. Where we are now is that there is an expectation continuing that we care for our employees' well-being and their health and the whole of them. And in order to do that, we need to talk to them, frankly. We need to talk to them all the time about everything around them, not just the work that they're doing. And it's very time consuming. We need to act on what they tell us. But if we don't do it, then we're letting ourselves and we're letting them down. We've got lots of very, very super bright people in our business. They've got great ideas and they come with a huge array of different experiences and different perspectives on life. Frankly, they're 20, 30 years younger than some of us and they have a different view and they're the leaders of the future. So what they believe, what they experience is really, really valuable. And we have to listen and we have to act on what they are telling us. Otherwise, we're destined to fail. So for me, listening is is the thing that's changed. That's, I, think, I think there are very few listeners out there who would disagree with you. In practice, however, it's, it's really challenging to live up to the incredibly high expectations that some of the workforce now have of their leaders. So as someone recently said, you know, now I have to be parent, social worker, financial advisor, uh, you know, first primary care health advisor and so on and so forth. So how in practice um, have you, you, you mentioned this about looking after the whole of a person uh, in your team. How in practice have you made that work in Savannah Group? I think we, this part of it is encouraging people to come into the office a little bit because then those sort of water cooler conversations we can have and also spot when somebody's looking not quite themselves. I think that's really, really important. Re-establishing those relationships because I find it easier to spot nuance when there's somebody in, in front of me. Even I'm seeing them face to face one day and the next day I'm on a Zoom call and something's changed so I can pick that up. But I think it is fundamentally taking the time and finding opportunities, finding reasons to talk to absolutely everybody. For me, inclusive leadership is all about talking to everybody and getting everybody's perspective. And it's enabling the time to do that. Right. Well, again, I mean, it sounds a very laudable ambition. How in practice do you make do you make time to speak to everybody and take soundings with everybody? I 
don't speak to everybody all the time, clearly. I'm in the office two days a week and those two days are pretty much spent talking to people in whatever form, formal, informal. But that's as far as I'm concerned, that's my job is to try and sort of be the glue that holds everything together, pick up what's going on, organise, arrange things um, and try and be available. Doesn't always work. Of course, it doesn't always work. But um, that's my that's my intention and my ambition and to encourage it in others as well. We know that learning and development is very high on the agenda for a lot of the younger workforce. Tell me about your approach to that in Savannah Group and in particular what's changed uh, post-pandemic. I think as any of us um, will attest, we learn by listening to other people, sitting and listening to people on the phone, doing whatever they were doing. Um, And we were all very concerned as we went into lockdown. How would anyone learn without the ability to learn through osmosis? What I think we've realised is that we forget that as we were educated, um, that's a long time ago. And actually, that those more junior coming to the business are used to learning in slightly different ways. So we have had to find new ways of training. We have had to find new ways of learning through osmosis. And we have to just make a huge effort. And we now have put more formal training back into place, actually, classroom sort of boardroom training practice um, recognizing that it is really really important but also recognizing that the way people learn is different um, and she's supporting that but um, what I really realize is we have to invest in our teams we have to listen to what they want we have to support them and what they're trying to do so that they can actually feel valued and continue to grow okay um now Obviously, there's a, there's a high set of expectations coming from the workforce. We are also, let's face it, in businesses that have you know quite tight margins and that are often small and need to emphasise performance as well. And sometimes there's a tension between in what you're describing as a as a, a great and empathetic leader and actually getting results. Um, t- talk to me about your approach at Savannah to managing performance because with the best will in the world a leader can be the listening leader the servant ceo but sometimes you do actually have to push for results tell me how you've handled that i think it depends on the um the level within the organization so somebody who is a um, consultant whose responsibility is to bring the work in they're they're very it's very tangible their results are very tangible and um, you know, generally, many people in recruitment have done well over the past couple of years. The challenge is those that are supporting them who have been put under quite a lot of pressure. And we are very keen that we keep them and we keep them valued and we keep them supported. So whilst the business is very busy, that they're not literally flogged to death. So and it all sounds a little bit trite, but we are putting more emphasis on values and behaviours and making sure that they're supported, um, which but we have to. It has to be a longer term view, because otherwise, yeah, yes, they could make us a lot of money today, but leave tomorrow and then we, we've got nothing left. So actually valuing um, that that our team bring is, is fundamental to our, our business success and it has to be a longer term view. So when you say putting more emphasis on values and behaviours, um, I think in a lot of people's experience, this will be, you know, paint, having them painted on the wall and, um, you know, maybe having some sort of prize attached to it or building it into an, you know, uh, an appraisal or review system. 
Can you give us some specifics about how you've done that in Savannah? Probably everything you've described. We are we went through a big exercise before lockdown. It feels like forever ago now, and um, where we collectively came up with what our values were. Nothing new under the sun, um, and they were they were stuck on the wall, and it was all very exciting. Where we are now is everybody has performance reviews, and they're measured against those. So. Yes, you've got your financial targets, but the how really matters to us. And that's the thing that um, encourages people to stay and join us, because why would they join Savannah over any other similar business? Actually, it's about the people and it's about the culture. And if we really mean it, we need to live it. And I think we are living it and we do all the things we give awards. But actually, it's this is the baseline. This isn't you're doing that thing. You're amazing. You're doing that thing. Therefore, you're doing your job. So are we, are we, what you're describing is something like a sort of balanced scorecard approach to performance review? Absolutely. It needs to be, it needs to be alive. Otherwise it's pointless. It is just stuck on the wall. But yeah, if, you know, as, as people businesses, our only asset is our people. So if we don't look after them and value them and develop them, then we have literally nothing left. So if we want to grow and we want to have a sort of established culture that is um, rewarding and a valuable place to be, we have to do it. And it matters and it makes a difference. Hmm. Okay. so one one of the other things that characterises a recruitment environment, a typical recruitment environment, is that apart from being very sales focused, it's also quite youthful in terms of the average employee profile and quite highly rewarded. Um, you know, again, compared to other industries. What issues, um, if anything, have come out of that for you? And how have you maybe adapted what you would do as a leader from other businesses? I think in any leadership role, understanding the motivation of those within the team is is vital and actually once you can understand it and harness it you're you're on a on a good on a good route forward so for me what we've tried to do is to get everybody feeling part of the business rather than just running their own little P&L they're, they're actually part of the business and understand and feel part of the strategic direction of Savannah so they have their financial motivation but also part of our purpose and feeling part of an organization that means something so we spent we spend a lot of time talking as you might imagine around the culture and and our, our values the other thing that we are is working really well is actually doing some other things around purpose so we have partnered with a um, charitable recruitment agency who support people who struggle to get into work for all sorts of reasons and all sorts of challenges so we work with them we are um, supporting them on Um, CV writing, on interview training, all sorts of things, just really tangential to what everyone's doing in a day to day. But the sense of purpose and value is palpable and um, it's it's working well. So so for me, actually really trying to get a hold of why people come to work, why they why they do their thing in addition to making lots of money. And I think increasingly what we're seeing is most of our young people value that sense of purpose much more than they did yes i've been involved in the past with numbers of, a number of businesses who um how can i put this who were quite happy to run fun days you know money raising days but there was no no long-term commitment 
to a charity. So, uh, you know, the day became a series of games or, you know, whatever, or competitions designed to generate donations. Um, And the most successful um, CSR programs that I've seen, I mean, successful in terms of motivation as well as as great outcomes, um, are those where the business has a long-term alignment with the whatever it is, the charity or movement that they're supporting and where people aren't just giving money, but uh, are actually, you know, getting hands-on involved, really, really powerful. Um, You mentioned earlier, Katrina, about um, the importance of fully involving those um, non-sales or business support people. Now, a lot of the uh, listeners who run small businesses will be thinking, well, yes, but how in practice, how specifically do we do that when we've got, for example, you know, people in our finance department who are well aware how much the salespeople earn um, and you know, constantly see reward and recognition and so forth. What specific actions have you taken to, to get that involvement for business support staff? I think we... And we try and be as inclusive as we possibly can. So we have non, I guess, non-work related things that we do. So we have various committees around um, inclusion and corporate social responsibility and sustainability, which is an absolute leveller. If you want, if you're interested in it, go go forth and, and, and chat and get some stuff done. Our social committee is a huge a hodgepodge of various different people who are interested in care. And I think these sort of sticky points where people get together with a group of people who they don't work with on a day-to-day basis, but they get on with and have a similar view. I think that helps hugely. We also um, reward people for behaviours. So where um, somebody's done gone above and beyond, they get a specific reward. We laud that sort of, we really positive enforce the, the good behaviour. Um, and also the other thing we, is there is opportunity for anybody to move into any role that they want to move into, frankly. So you join the business over here and you want to, go and be a consultant and sell work for crack on you know this is the trajectory that you want to go into so we try and be as egalitarian as we possibly can um but you know i I try and make it as level as we possibly can everyone has a value everyone does a valuable job um and that's the sort of culture that we're trying to um foster so i i myself have have you know sort of struggled through with this issue that you've got um people who are business support staff whose performance is actually much, much more difficult to measure. And um, whereas, you know, we can see sales banked for us, sales stuff, in fact, success in many business support functions is no complaints, you know. So give us some specific examples, if you could, Katrina, about how, when you say we reward behaviours, give us some something specific that you can reward for someone who's in business support that is still contributing towards the business? So I speak to every client at the end of an assignment, whether it's been successfully placed or not. That's just what I do. And what I'm eliciting there is how how was the process from, did you get the candidate that you wanted, but also what was the process? We always get comments on our support team. It's so valuable. It's so important. We make a big deal of that. It's very exciting. And actually, you, by organising all the meetings, whatever it was your role was, you really made a difference. And um, our support staff get recognised on every single one of those calls. Oh, wow, that's a, that's great. And that's a really big commitment for you to personally speak to every 
clients. It's great. I mean, let's face it, everyone likes being asked what they think. You have an opinion, opinion piece. Um, it's So 15 minutes of their time, it's, it's the most valuable thing I can frankly do. Uh, and we learn all sorts of things about what we could do better and, and what's going on in our client's business. Um, it's, it's a really, really useful thing to do. So there we've got really tangible benefit um, for the, the EA, whoever's, whoever's made the call, but also for our junior researchers. You know, if they've come across an opportunity or they spoke to a candidate who that is, he's a lead. So we're going to we're, we celebrate that. So it is really just celebrating those sort of micro things that are happening, um, which really add up. And it just creates a sort of sense of um, purpose and belonging. Yes, you've just, I think, highlighted really well how, um, you know, look, with the best will in the world, a lot of salespeople overestimate their own centrality to the, the client relationship, don't they? And in fact, you know, it's, you know, accurate invoicing is just as important a part of the whole experience that a client has or, or being paid on time accurately or, or easily if they're a contractor. Every, everybody matters, I think. Your, your business obviously is focused on recruiting for leadership positions and leadership teams for your clients. So I'd like to, to use this last bit of this um, interview to ask you how that has changed and how as a business you are addressing uh, you know, the new environment for your clients. On one level, has it changed? Not sure it has. Our clients um, come to us because it's a difficult role to fill. The market is very much candidate driven, as we all talk about and we hear. It's no different at whatever level you're working. Um, the candidates are asking more questions around things that companies find hard to answer. So, you know, what's the purpose? What's the value? Why do I need to be in the office five days a week? All the questions that we hear in the Daily Mail, it's, it's all there, whatever level we're talking about. I think that the interesting challenge is for an organisation to articulate what they want, because I'm not sure any of us could properly articulate what a role that we're hiring today is going to look like in six months time. So then we're really into the um, nuance of, OK, what are the skills that you want? What's the background? Well, we've got that and we've got you know technical skills that you built. But what does the person look like? And that's, I guess, where, where the value comes in what we do. But new skills around empathy, empathetic leadership, all of these you know, well, wellness type um, individuals, that's what companies really need. Some of them have got it. They recognise that's what they want. But actually, if you're going to push through a change programme, which let's face it, most companies are, these are the skills, these real tangible leadership skills are, are what they need and what they are realising that they need. And for any individual in the senior management role, they need to be able to articulate that pretty sharply. Mm, well, that sounds like great advice. Some of our listeners will be thinking, well, you know, I, I'm aware of this, but it's really difficult to get my clients down that path in reality. You know, there's a lot of lip service paid to, and I'm going to characterise it in, in, by describing to you a conversation I had with one of my client's clients recently. And he said, um, he said to me, I know what you're talking about, Alison. You're talking about all those like female skills, aren't you? And I, yeah, I get it in principle that they're going to be necessary, but I still need someone with this background. So if you can find me some female candidates with this background, great. But um, it was quite clear to me that this was A, only partly understood, B, that the client in question kind of... Mm, 
was was assuming that this was a box ticking exercise and likewise that you know having a diverse shortlist was a box ticking exercise that we needed to be seen to have considered people from other backgrounds um how does how do your team at savannah in practice actually get people over this discussion and have you for example used any new processes or anything to i think we we ask lots of questions because there are as we all know there are organizations out there who have a box to tick and what we try and do obviously is get under the skin of that what is it you really want because just because you're female doesn't mean you hold those skills in exactly if you're male, you don't necessarily not have them. So let's really understand what is it you want this individual to be able to do. And then we'll start from there. But also we have the flip side that says if you want someone who's got that track record and has done you know 20 years doing X, Y and Z, well, by definition, the majority of people will have come through this stereotypical group. So let's just look at breaking down what is it you really want. And if you want somebody who is more from a more diverse background, well, you need to go back and you need to say, well, actually, do you need somebody who has got been to a Russell Group University and the 2-1 and done 20 years, this and that? No, you don't. Actually, you want something slightly different. So for us, it really is about asking those questions. What are you looking for? But also, let's just you know look at some of the diversity data and say, okay, well, having a diverse board will make you a more successful business. Let's just really get under the skin. And how do you really enable more diversity at a senior level? And then all the way through your organisation, because putting a female NED as one person on your board is not going to make the change that you're looking for. So um, I think it's an awful lot of work to be done. It's, it's hard. It's nuanced. It's certainly not straightforward, but it's something that we are passionate about. And in every role we do, we work to educate and support our clients going through that very difficult conversation that you describe. Mm. And, and just to conclude, then, thinking now about your clients again, um, what, what would you say are the key skills that the leaders they are trying to recruit the uh, uh, the emerging set of skills that perhaps weren't emphasized before but that you now find that's what we're looking for that's what we need to go go and find i think empathetic leadership is absolutely the hub of it actually having someone who is prepared to ask questions and listen to answers is the nub of everything because we cannot be all people we cannot really understand what a gen z person feels but we can jolly well ask the question and we can listen to what they're telling us and with that and with that sort of self-confidence to be able to ask questions then we stand a chance to be able to take all the other skills that we have all the more technical skills and take our business forward if we exclude that real swell of opinion that's coming through frankly the businesses are really going to struggle Mm, yes okay so what you're describing there is a much more nuanced approach rather than a process-led or a you know systems-led um sets of skills um but it is on top isn't it i mean it is there is no doubt about it that leaders in business have probably never faced such a long and diverse list of requirements on them um as they do now and it's hard and it's hard to learn you can't go to school and learn this stuff, I think, is the, the challenge. Katrina, it's been fascinating to talk to you. Thank you so much for making the time um, to record this for our listeners. Um, 
So to those who are interested in developing their own leadership practice and um, getting the best out of performance, if you'd like to discuss that and want to arrange a discovery call with me, you can reach me on alison at recruitmentleadership.co.uk. And Katrina, um, if anyone wants to take up anything that you've said, how would they reach you? Um, contact me at Savannah. So you can, um, we have a Savannah Group website or it's kcheverton at savannah-group.com and I'd be delighted to talk to anyone that's interested. Okay. Katrina, thank you very much and thank you everyone for listening. Thank you, Alison. Thank you. You've been listening to the Recruitment Leadership Podcast. If you enjoyed our podcast, please subscribe, review and share so that others can find the podcast too. We really appreciate your support. If you have any questions about the topics covered or wish to find out more about recruitment leadership, please email alison at recruitmentleadership.co.uk referencing the podcast. We're also on LinkedIn where you can follow recruitment leadership and connect with Alison Humphreys. Thank you for listening and we hope you join us next time for another episode of the Recruitment Leadership Podcast.